Well, here we are. It's another weekend. We're trying to dive into God's Word together. And before we get started, I want to pray together and ask God to continue to give us all that we need through this uh, very strange time that we're in. So pray with me, please. God, we want to take a minute just to stop and thank you for your good hand of protection upon us. Just how good you have been even in getting us through this uh, lockdown this far that we have been uh, blessed by you in so many ways that everything that we have comes from your hand and we know God thinks it would be so much worse if we had what we deserved, which is to incur the uh, penalty of our own sins. And we're great, grateful for your grace and we want to stop and thank you that even if the worst were true, that we are so blessed to be adopted children of yours, that through Christ we have the imputed righteousness that makes us acceptable before you, that we have hell canceled and heaven secured for us and the complete and full forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for that, God, and we pray for those around us that are struggling and suffering. Uh, we know that uh, we do as a church as well, and there's many of us that have various trials in the middle of this struggle, but we pray for those around us that uh, have no hope in Christ, and we want to bring your Son and His truth and the gospel to them. So make us bold, please, in this endeavor. Let us be uh, faithful to you and the things that we say. We would not bend or twist the truth in any way to accommodate the people around us and their expectations of what they think you are, but may we be good ambassadors and representatives of your truth. So, God, thanks for another weekend for us to study your word together, to think through these discussion questions that'll uh, associate uh, themselves with this message, and I pray that you would help us to be enriched by the time we spend together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was uh, back on March 14th that I spoke... Um, to you, the first message, I think it was the first message we had together in uh, the book of Philippians about anxiety and uncertainty and about peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And as I talked to you about that um, passage, I was um, in reference, in just passing reference, telling you that this book, the book of Philippians, uh, was given to us in a context that should be remembered, particularly as Paul is talking so much about peace because there was no, humanly speaking, no peace in Paul's life at this particular time. Uh, I want to return to this book and I want to spend some time thinking through the context of Philippians and then looking through the book, literally the whole book today, just thinking through things that are applicable to us. Because if you want to talk about um, a lockdown, Paul was in it. This is one of the four prison epistles that Paul wrote during that period of time that he was imprisoned from AD 60 to AD 62 in Rome. Uh, we call it the first Roman imprisonment because he would be imprisoned again. Uh, but that first Roman imprisonment, he writes four books of the New Testament and all of those books uh, that we call the prison epistles, uh, Colossians, Philemon, uh, Ephesians, and Philippians. Uh, those books were given to us when Paul is restricted I mean, the application is obvious here. He uh, is under house arrest as the book of Acts ends uh, there in, in 61 AD, AD 61. There is that sense in which he is not doing what he planned to do. He had plans to continue these missionary journeys, and uh, we expected him to continue to plant churches, to strengthen churches. We watched all that taking place, and yet now he is sequestered in Rome, and... Um, can't do what he wants. His freedoms are constricted, and uh, he is stuck there uh, in some rented room that uh, the Romans had put him in, and he had a guard, and uh, though he was able to have people come and go, he could not be the kind of missionary that he intended to be. So remember Paul's imprisonment as we think through this book. Um, I want you to remember the book as it's introduced to us is uh, a book that's introduced to us where Paul has already been. He's familiar with people there. He's going to drop names in this book, and it's the city we come in contact with in the book of Acts historically. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia, uh, you might remember the seller of purple garments there, is uh, converted. Uh, we see the imprisonment of Paul in Philippi. Uh, you remember he's released through that um, earthquake that takes place and delivered the Philippian jailer, wanted to kill himself because he saw the prisoners escaping. And uh, Paul responds to that distraught jailer by sharing the gospel with him. Um, it's an important Roman colony in the first century. It's a military outpost. 
um, founded in Paul's missionary endeavors on his second missionary journey. He goes back and visits five years later uh, on his third missionary journey. Um, you can tell in Philippians that this is a um, prison epistle because he, in the first chapter, says that he is in prison. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Uh, he says, because in my imprisonment, he says, your partakers with me with grace and in my imprisonment and the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. Um, so that's the context of this. And speaking of Philippians, uh, and the reason I think it's good for us to use the template of Paul's attitude and uh, the things he's doing in this book is because as he ends this book, or at least in the fourth chapter, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And so he holds himself up as a template, as he does many times in his writings, and says, follow me as I follow Christ. So I want to see how Paul responds as we just kind of look at his attitude, his resolves, his values throughout this book, and just skim through this, chapters 1 through 9, and say, what is it that in his sequestering, his lockdown, his house arrest, what is it that he is exemplifying, and how can we replicate that in our lives in the midst of what we're in the middle of, which I hope is soon to come to an end, but we are still in the middle of it, so I want to deal with that. And since some of you dared me, not that that's the reason, uh, I did an eight-point sermon two weeks ago. I did a nine-point sermon uh, last week, and so you didn't think I could do a ten-point sermon, but I'm going to do that, and here it is. Uh, so ten points, ten observations as we move through the book. So grab your Bibles. If you haven't already, we're going to look at the book of Philippians, we're going to make some observations and we're going to start with the most, most um, obvious. Well, it's often overlooked, but it should be obvious because we think about we're reading a written letter. Look at chapter 1, verse number 1, when he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. That traditional salutation of the ancient epistle, the early uh, letter here that... Uh, Paul is delivering, and it is a piece of written communication. Now, we did study at one point uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 a few weeks back, which reminded us that Paul is always wanting to see people face to face. Let me just quote for you that real quick, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So we know his preferred interaction with the people of God is face to face. That's what he wants, but that's not what he can have. And we have because God uh, chose to um, utilize him to give us the New Testament, much of it. Uh, he is writing, he's utilizing the means of communication that we are now reading. He is writing a letter. So let's make... 10 observations, and the first one is simply this, that Paul uses all means of communication, any means of communication. Paul uses all available means of communication. Paul uses all uh, less than perfect, less than optimal means of communication. Paul is a communicator, and Paul wants to communicate with his brothers and sisters in Christ. As a matter of fact, you'll learn, though we don't have any extant letters from these Christians back to Paul, Paul is expecting communication back to him. And I did make this statement back when we were looking at uh, Thessalonians that uh, it took a lot. It was hard. It was difficult. You needed a messenger. You needed uh, to send them on a road that was going to be uh, dangerous, perhaps, or they needed resources and supplies. It just took a lot to get this communication done. And I find us now in the middle of this uh, lockdown, we can so easily complain, as, and I, I don't want to brag on anybody, but the idea of us looking at things like uh, you know, FaceTime and the Zoom small group meetings and people saying, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of it. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to be back together. And of course, that is our desire, but um, don't grow weary of the imperfect means of communication that we have available to us. I just want us to recognize though face-to-face -face is always what we want. We want to be in physical contact with each other in the same room at the same time, assembling together. Uh, use the means of communication that you have available. Paul used the means of communication he had available. Don't grow weary of the imperfect means of communication. So redouble your efforts right now in this sermon. I want you to say, I am going to purpose to utilize 
the means of community. I'm going to text. I'm going to Zoom. I'm going to uh, email. I'm going to FaceTime. I'm going to be on, on Google Hangouts. I'm going to do what I can do to continue to connect with the people of God. Don't grow weary of that. Verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Note this carefully. Verse 3, uh, now verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And it goes on, but let's just think about that statement right there. Making this prayer with joy. And he goes on to list reasons. But can you just recognize that Paul, in a time of lockdown, uh, two years of it, and at least in the chronology, as I've studied this and I've presented it before in New Testament survey, uh, probably the last of the, f- of the prison epistles that we have in his first Roman imprisonment. I mean, he's been there a long time. Uh, he has got to be tired of, of being in lockdown, and yet he is purposefully expressing the fact that when he prays, he has joy. And he's joyful because the first statement here in verse 3 is he's thankful. And he's thankful for them as he thinks about them. I know this is a high and lofty goal, but I want you to jot it down this way. Number two, Paul, and again, I'm going to state these all as indicative statements about what Paul did, third-person statements, but of course, easy for us. We're used to it. Turn that into a second-person imperative in your mind. But the statement is Paul was joyfully thankful for other Christians. He was joyfully thankful for his fellow believers. He was joyfully thankful for the people of the church that he loved, and he purposefully, joyfully express thanksgiving for them. We say these kinds of things a lot, and it may sound redundant, but can you take time and focus on saying to God, I am grateful for the people that share my bond of fellowship in my church. Uh, I can't meet together. Paul couldn't meet with the Philippians, but he is going to find joy in his prayer life with God saying, I care about these people. I love these people. And I'm going to find joy in that expression of thanksgiving. I know we pray, and I'm hoping you're praying. I hope you're praying more. I know that Satan would love to work hard against your prayer life right now. But can you make sure you spend time just being thankful for people, the people of God in your local church, and just be sure that you're focusing on that kind of prayer and ask God to give you this joyful expression of thanksgiving for the Christians in your life. Think about your connections to the body of Christ. That is something to be thankful for. And I don't know what it is that gets you happy. Um, You know, I hope it's not the, you know, just the stuff of life or the, you know, the, the food or the sleep or the, you know, the breaks or whatever it is that you find joy in. I want you to find joy in being grateful for the people that are in your spiritual family. Uh, Verse 7, drop down to verse 7. It says in chapter 1, verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. That's a lot of his prayer life focusing on these people, being thankful for them. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, here's the reminder, this is a prison epistle, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I already quoted that, but look at this now, verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection, we've looked at several things that uh, translate that way in our uh, study, even in 2 Peter. Uh, but I want you to know, just want to double check this. Yes, of course, uh, that the word here, and we did run into this word somewhere in our study. I think it was uh, our morning one another's. Uh, it's the word uh, spelengthen that word that has to do with my inner gut, that idea of feeling that affection, not just the word phileo, which is a common expression of the brotherly affection that we learn in Second Peter chapter 1, but the idea of really having that, it just I feel for you as people. Um, it's the center of emotions. It's like in our modern era, talking, uh, modern era, talking about the heart. Um, again, you're not going to find... Um, statements of affections or depictions, I should say, of, of affection with, uh, you know, the intestines. But that's the picture in the ancient world of feeling something in your intestines, in your gut. And he has that deep affection, that moving affection, that he feels that affection for them. And he's cultivated that in part through his prayer life. Uh, he's prayed for these people. But I put it this way, whatever the 
steps are to get there, and we can suggest some, but just jot it down this way. Number three, Paul cultivated a deep affection for God's people. He had that. That just drove him. That was the thing that that uh, gave him great joy. He calls them later the, his joy and his crown. He cares about these people and has a deep abiding affection for them. And I think we so often in the midst of trials and difficulties uh, can lose that sense of real affection for the people of God. We don't feel with them. We don't have that. Here's some words we use today, that empathy or that uh, sympathy for them. Empathy, that strong word of sharing emotions. I, I want us to think through how we can do that better by caring more about other people's pain in the midst of this trial and uh, putting that at the forefront of my thinking in my prayer life and in my concern. And even as I think, I wake up in the morning and say, how can I help make this person's life uh, better? How can I relieve their pain? How can I enter into their trial? How can I, to use the word, of, the word in the book of Galatians, how can I bear their burden? How can I come alongside and help them? Uh, the picture of the yoke in the ancient world, not that yellow thing in an egg, but the bar that went across the the shoulders of the oxen when they plowed the field, you'd have this big beam and then you'd have these two sloping leather straps and they would yoke together. They would uh, bind together to pull together. There are people in this church right now that are struggling. They're struggling with, you know, just some just going stir crazy, some with kids and, and the trials financially and to, to splank them, to have that, that, that uh, compassion for them, it's awesome, often translated that way, compassion, Matthew 9, for instance, Jesus is moved with compassion, spelanchthon. Um, that's the kind of, of goal we ought to have. I want to develop more of that deep affection for God's people. I have to think about their lives more often. Uh, I have to get into thinking for more than just a second when I go through a prayer list for someone as to what it's like to be in their shoes. And how can I in some way come alongside and bear their burden? And it's more than just asking, right? We've talked about that in this, this lockdown. You just say, how can I help you or what can I do for you? But to creatively think and anticipate by getting yourself in as best you can, if there's a this level of discernment in your life will depend on how good you get at this, but be able to anticipate what their struggles are and say, I want to care for them in that situation. Paul cultivated a deep affection for God's people. And those words, look at verse 7, feeling. I mean, we talk a lot about mental things and Paul, the theologian, and Christianity about thinking and all that's true. But uh, I hope the emphasis even throughout this lockdown that has been on the cultivation of our affection and love for each other is you know, something you see as we tease that out of the text and draw that out of the text, surface that in the text. Um, it's it's a, in a lot of places. It's everywhere. Here in verse six, it's right for me to feel this way about you. I have that spelanchthon, that uh, that affection, and I, I yearn for you. I long for you, with the affection of Christ. Great, great um, truth. Paul cultivated a deep affection for the people of God. So he utilized all means of communication. He joyfully was thankful for other Christians. He developed that deep affection for them. Drop down to verse number twelve. He says here in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and again, there's the context, he's in prison in Rome, probably pushing the two-year mark at this point, has really served to advance the gospel. Uh, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So here were these Roman soldiers that were guarding the jailers, the imperial guard that were answering to Caesar. They were there you know, checking in on him, probably delivering food to him, probably not what he wanted to eat, didn't, you know, I mean, think of all the parallels. We, he didn't have what he was used to. He didn't have his normal meals or his diet or the comfortable things that he wanted. Um, and yet those people that he was interacting with, he said, um, the Imperial Guard and the rest and all the rest, he says, my imprisonment um, is for Christ. They know that I'm there for God's purposes, which is not the reason we're sequestered, but, um, it was the reason he was. And most of the brothers, verse 14, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I mean, just the positive spin on that, uh, which I hate to use the word spin because it's, not, it's not, not in keeping with truth. It certainly corresponds with reality that he is seeing the optimism of this situation being all, all part of God's plan to advance the gospel. 
Go back to the beginning of this message. I talked about in our thinking about Paul. He wanted to do other things. He had other plans. His plans were certainly superior to him being locked up in jail. I mean, this was a guy that traveled all the time. He was a missionary. He spent all of his time going to get the message out, and now he can't get out. He can't go anywhere. He can't go out there and make disciples. Well, he's stuck where he's stuck, and he says, you know what? This has turned out to advance the gospel. God's getting his objectives done through me. I put it this way. Number four, Paul was optimistic because God is sovereign. Paul was optimistic because God was sovereign. And do you not see the optimism in that passage, verse 12? Hey, it really has served, even the word really. It's served to advance the gospel. I see that. And people are hearing the gospel that wouldn't otherwise hear the gospel. The imperial guard, the jailers there in Rome. It's not like the Philippian jail. This is a you know, much more high falutin kind of place where the imperial guard, the praetorian guard was there watching him. Uh, I, look, those people are hearing the gospel that wouldn't otherwise. And not only that, because I'm in prison and people are watching me suffer through this, they're more confident to share the word. And they're doing it more boldly without fear. That's a hopeful, optimistic leveraging of the circumstance for good because he knows God's in charge of the circumstance. I mean, I trust you believe in Romans 8, 28. Right, that as a Christian, right, God is governing the world and He's governing the details of America and He's governing the details of California and Orange County and your life. And all that's going on now is all a part of God's predetermined plan. And what that does for us is gives us a great sense, I trust, of optimism that everything's on schedule, that God is doing what He's doing. Everyone uh, is surprised by this, but God is not surprised by any of this. And we can know that, Romans 8, 28, God is going to work together all things for good. Everything is going to work together for good, not necessarily so that I can have a Learjet and a, own my own golf club and, you know, um, drive a Porsche. But I, I, it's going to work for good in the fact that he's going to get his job done. He's going to see his means or his purpose accomplished through the means that he has decreed and set in place. And so I'm going to tell you that we should be optimistic about that. Paul's optimistic about being sequestered and locked down. We should be optimistic about being sequestered and locked down. We should have that kind of biblical optimism because you have to affirm the sovereignty of God. And if you're not there yet, man, we got to work on that. We have to get to the place where we believe that God is sovereign over all things. The biggest struggle we have is over God's sovereignty in salvation, uh, but it goes much further than that. Uh, you got to get over the struggle with that, and you got to get over the struggle with his sovereignty in this world and that he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter one. So you haven't read uh, our, our friend here at Compass, uh, Bruce Ware's book. I think Tom Schreiner also uh, was the editor of the book, Still Sovereign. That may be a good place to start. Uh, a compilation of all kinds of authors contributing to that book. It's a book called Still Sovereign, which is about God's sovereignty. It's really dealing with the struggle of how God can be sovereign in salvation. Um, David Felter, another friend of, of Compass, uh, wrote a book uh, called Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. I recommended that many times before. Or uh, Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, Don Carson wrote the book, um, uh, God's Sovereignty, Human Responsibility, God, God's Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. That one's a little tougher and goes through a lot of material, including uh, rabbinic material and intertestamental uh, material uh, for an easier read. You can deal with um, J.I. Packer's little book called Sovereignty and the Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, and again, those are going to start with the hardest issues of all, which are how is it that God is sovereign in salvation? But we've got to get down to the place where we know God is sovereign in the details of our lives, including this shutdown, this lockdown, which is causing a lot of trouble. But we've got to say, if God is involved, if God is planning, if God is working his purposes out, even if your plan was to be, you know, going to this city or that city, making a profit, whatever, uh, like Paul was planning to go do this and that in the missionary journeys that he was engaged in, but now he's on lockdown. Um, he can be optimistic. You can be optimistic. I can be optimistic. Should not affect um, our attitude to the place where we're thinking, man, this is horrible. Maybe uncomfortable, just like Paul was in prison, but not horrible. Not horrible because God going to work out his plan through his people. Number four, God was, I'm sorry, Paul was optimistic because God is sovereign and we should too. Drop down to verse number 19. Just making observations moving here through this passage, or this book rather. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit 
of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. I think I'm going to get out. And he did, by the way. But he had that anticipation. He said, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not uh, be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, love that, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now catch this, comma, whether by life, whether I get out and get to go travel and do what I want, or by death, whether this kills me. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Literally, well, it's been 20 minutes now, but 30 minutes ago, I got uh, news that a friend of mine died. Didn't die of COVID-19, but um, that reminds me that, you know, no matter what the situation, here's a godly man that just died. And I think to myself, that is um, for us as Christians, the um, it doesn't end our passion to honor God. We want to honor him whether we live or whether we die, whether we're on lockdown or whether we're free. Um, the next verse, obviously, is the biggest verse of all to get everything in perspective. For me to live is Christ, verse 21, uh, but to die is gain. And I just want us to remember how that should be our resolve no matter what. I put it that way. Number five, Paul was resolved to glorify God. Remember what that means, to please him, to honor him, no matter what. Paul was resolved to glorify God no matter what. Making observations through the book of Philippians, there's one. It ought to be our resolve as well. We're going to follow him as he follows Christ. We're going to see the pattern in him. We're going to follow that pattern. Paul was resolved to glorify God no matter what. And that ought to be our resolve, whether you get COVID-19 and die, whether you end up losing your business, whether you end up, you know, struggling with this or that or the other, doesn't matter. We're going to make God we trust, not ashamed to call us his children and not ashamed to be called God by us. Remember that passage in Hebrews? Um, by the way that we are resolved to please him, to glorify him in any circumstance. So four months ago, three months ago, you were glorifying God, I trust as a Christian, in that circumstance. Now it should be your resolve to glorify him in this circumstance. Uh, scroll on down or flip over to chapter 2, number 6 here. Chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Longer section here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that's as straightforward as it gets, isn't it? Right, right there. Do everything you can without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. And guess what a crooked and twisted generation does? They're always complaining about everything. Have you noticed that, the non-Christian world? Always complaining and grumbling and disputing about everything. Matter of fact, those are two good words to describe most of social media, right? They're complaining and they're fighting, right? They're grumbling and they're disputing. And um, that's not how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to be innocent and blameless against the backdrop of that kind of, 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 of stuff, that grumbling and complaining and, and disputing rather among whom, and here's the next phrase, I'm getting ahead of myself, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, um, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, because you did those things. You lived this contrasted life, this distinctive life that was so different than the rest of the world, and the rest of the world, perverted, twisted, crooked, it's not what they ought to be. And one of the things that characterizes us should be the distinction of not grumbling and not disputing. We're not complaining and we're not bickering and fighting. Now you say, well, that's what he taught. Well, he's also practicing it. I want to add verses 17 and 18 because he proves that he is doing this. And that's what I'm looking for in this book as I surveyed the book for you this weekend. I'm like, what is it that we see here in this book? We see Paul in the midst of his lockdown doing these things. It says here, verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, that's a poetic way, uh, a euphemistic way, a flowery way to say if I die in here, which you'd already said in chapter one, it could be, and if I do, whatever. I think I'm gonna get out, but if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, right, from back in, Acts, he had gone and basically gotten in trouble with the Roman authorities because of his ministry among 
the Macedonian provinces, uh, all around the Aegean Sea, in Philippi. Um, so, hey, it would be because I was doing service to you as a, as a minister. He says, underline this, three words, I am glad. I'm glad. And I rejoice with you all. Now, I just told you to be positive, optimistic, and not complaining. And I'm doing that. Likewise, verse 18, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I'm not doing what I just told you not to do. And what I told you not to do in verse 14 is to grumble and dispute. I just want to focus, first of all, on that grumbling part. So let's put that down. Number six, Paul was resolved not to complain. Paul was resolved not to complain. Paul was resolved not to complain. Let me repeat that about 18 more times. Paul was resolved not to complain. And we're supposed to follow the pattern of sound words in his life. We're supposed to follow the pattern of his behavior. I mean, let me quote that again. That's such a great line. He says, Philippians 4, 9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Here's what he's saying. Guys, don't complain. And you're watching me do the opposite of that. And I want you to do the same. I mean, that's remarkable. Paul's not perfect, obviously. But man, it's people like that that we should try to emulate. And God has asked us to be like the Apostle Paul in not complaining or disputing. And it's not just sometimes, verse 14, do all things. Now you're getting a letter from a guy who's on lockdown, real lockdown in prison with a guard at the door, uh, which may feel like what we're at almost, but there, there's what he has. And he is saying, you guys do everything without complaining. I just think that is so important right now that you and I don't complain and look at yourself, look at your life, uh, think about the things you've said in the last 24 hours and say, God, how am I doing in this department? Ask him, God, what, what, is, what does it look like for me? Think about the words you say. I mean, I just wonder how we're doing. You had to rate yourself, right? A through F, where would you be on the not complaining scale? Uh, maybe it's time for a good, honest look in the mirror of God's word and to know that the expectation is to go through every circumstance, all things, without grumbling or disputing. Get to disputing in a minute. Drop down to verse 19. Well, that's the next verse. He says, I hope, and there's a long section here if you're taking notes, verses 19 through 30. So bear with me as I read this with a little bit of comment here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Remember, that's how he started the book in chapter 1 about Paul and Timothy. He says in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints. So Timothy's with him. He's writing from Rome. He's going to send the letter that he just written that he's going to finish here in chapter 4. He's going to send that with Timothy. And so he's going to leave, have Timothy leave his presence. Verse number 20, how valuable is Timothy? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Think about that. Now, here's a guy that really cares about other people. Here's a guy that really cares about other people. And Paul's going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave him. I'm going to have him leave me so that he can go to you. And I'm hoping he'll bring news back to me. And that's going to take a long time to get from Rome to Philippi. He says, um, he'll be generally concerned for your welfare. For they all seek, as a general principle, their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. And how as a son with a father, he served me in the gospel. You know how good of a friend, as a co-worker, as a, an understudy, as a disciple he is. You've watched him. You've seen his proven worth to me, Paul is saying. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. That's the reflection and the echo of chapter 1. I hope to get out. You're going to pray for me. I'm praying that I'm going to get out, and I'm hoping I will. Verse 25. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. So we've got another guy here. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my needs. He sounds like a great guy too. Verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. For he was ill. Verse 27. Near to death. But God had mercy on him. But not only on him, but also on me. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Think about how close Paul felt with guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
But I'm all the more eager, verse 28, to send him. Therefore, you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious because you won't be freaked out that you thought he was dead or was dying. You'll get to see him. I won't be anxious about your feelings about him. Man, Paul's showing how close he is, how intertwined he is, how emotionally connected he is with all these people. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service to me. He was ministering to me. You couldn't get to me. He was there as your emissary, as your representative. And wow, um, he's he's a great guy. All I'm saying is all that heavy praise from Paul for Epaphroditus and Timothy in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 is a reminder of how close he was with these people even though they could not spend much time with him. I mean, they were not just hanging out with him long term. I mean, these guys were coming, they would bring stuff, and then they would go, and they would go on these long journeys. And here is a guy who's separated from these people. They used to be his traveling partners, Paul and Titus and Timothy and um, Silas and uh, Epaphroditus and Epaphras. These guys were, um, and Luke, Uh, They were his traveling companions. They stayed together all the time. And now they're apart. They're spread apart and they have to be apart because Paul is sequestered. He's locked down. He's under house arrest. And yet he maintains the closeness of these relationships. And that happens through communication, through writing, through prayer, through visits, which they could have in the house arrest, it says at the end of chapter 28 in, in Acts. I'm just trying to say, here's the high standard of the Apostle Paul, number seven. Paul did not let distance, because there were physical distance between him and his friends, diminish his friendships. Paul did not let distance diminish his friendships. And I don't know how it's going right now with your circle. And I know we all have our circles within our circles, you know, like Jesus had Peter, James, and John, and then he had the 12, and then he had the 70. But those relationships, particularly those closest relationships, I mean, you cannot have the connections you want to have right now, but Paul wouldn't let distance and time, which are both involved in the separation he had with these people, diminish those, those friendships. He could still say, here's, here's Timothy, a, a proven son. Right? He's like, I'm like a father and a son. We're so close. And then Epaphroditus. I can't even think of the thought of him dying. That would just be sorrow upon sorrow. And uh, you know, the way that he speaks of him, a fellow soldier, uh, uh, a brother in the Lord, these are the kinds of statements that remind us as to how close and warm and connected these relationships were, even though there was distance between them and the connections couldn't be what they once were. The challenge and and application, I hope, is obvious here. Paul didn't let distance diminish his friendships, nor should we. Go to chapter 3, verse 8, please. Chapter 3, verse 8. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I'll read through verse 14, another pretty large section, but I want you to see this in context. Um, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I know it's hard to jump into the middle of this where he's talking about this imputed righteousness of Christ and uh, how he thought he was great, as great as you could be as a Pharisee, but uh, he had to count all that loss to know that uh, it was about Christ and what he had done and righteousness that comes through faith. It's a great section, obviously. But let me get into where he's going here in terms of perspective. He says, uh, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them rubbish, middle of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the punchline. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God depends on faith, that I may know him. Okay, that's present tense, right? There's at least a knowing. It's through a glass dimly. It's foggy. Um, And the power of his resurrection. And that's true to an extent that we have the newness of life, as he talks about in Romans, of the resurrection. But the whole point of the physical resurrection is about to come. I mean, he's got something more in view than just the power to hang in there through the present circumstances. It says, and that we may share in his sufferings. That's what he's in right now, incarcerated in prison. Uh, Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the future. I got some resurrection power in the sense that I can endure, whereas other people would give up hope. I don't. I've got Christ and my faith in Christ makes me right with God and I can power through all this, but I'm looking forward to and I can't wait for and I'm focused on this actual physical resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, 
Not that I've already obtained this. Clearly, we haven't. We're not there yet. Or I'm already perfect. I've gotten to the place of where I'm going to be in perfect fellowship with God and a perfect glorified body. But I press on. That's his focus. I make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I have relationship now. I know I'm right with God, but my focus is beyond this life. Brothers, I do not consider, verse 13, as that I have made it my, I'm sorry. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I'm not there yet, but I do this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's the future eschatological horizon of what's coming. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's future, beyond the grave. That's where we're headed. And I just put it this way, and we've talked about this, I guess, a lot. I don't want to belabor it, but verse number eight, Paul set his hope on eternity. He set his sights on eternity. He set his goal on eternity. He set his focus and his joy on eternity. He store up treasure in heaven. He saw himself as a citizen of heaven. He focused on the fact that I'm going to be in a place where there's no crying, no mourning, no pain, no disease. I can't wait for that. His focus was on that. He was so heavenly minded that he started to become earthly good in terms of his missionary work, as it's been poetically said and famously said. We need to become heavenly minded. People say, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. We really don't become productive, at least in the cause of Christ on this earth and getting people ready for heaven until our focus is set on heaven and focus is set on being with God. And more specifically, the coming kingdom of God when Christ will, Christ will reign on earth in the new heaven and new earth will be here, right? God's throne and dwelling among us here. Uh, that's an eternal perspective. Paul's hope was there. His focus was there. And he was absolutely all about it. Keep your focus on eternity. It's not just about getting through COVID-19 crisis. It's not about getting back to work. It's not about, you know, getting into our new, you know, our old routines. All that's going to be good and better than this. I mean, that's our hope, but um, not about that. It's not Paul saying, I can't wait to get out of prison. I can't wait. I get to travel again. I can't wait to get the falafel I'm used to getting on the, you know, in Tarsus. He, you know, he's focused way beyond that. And though I want to look forward to the times we can be together on this campus, and I say it all the time on video, I... I, I do, you know, wait, I can't wait for that. I do desire that. But I hope my heart and your heart is focused on something much bigger than that. Our real desire is to be in the coming kingdom. Go to chapter four, please. Almost there. Quick observation here. Verse two. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This is Philippians 4, 2. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I entreat them. I beg them. Do it. Yes, verse 3. I ask you also, true companion, to help these women, and that could be a reference uh, to Timothy or Epaphroditus, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Your names are in the book of life. And yet you got some warring factions here. You've got some disagreeable Christians. You've got some people that are probably grumbling and disputing. They're complaining and they're fighting. And here's two gals in the church, Iodia and Syntyche, and they're at odds. And here's Paul working to take these two disagreeable Christians and get them to agree. And he reminds them of the biggest picture, the biggest things. Your names are written in the book of life. The whole message last week that I brought to you was all about, from Romans 14, us being unified. And I hope that struck a chord in terms of the need. And if it didn't, then it will, because I think we're going to have increasing disputes about this whole mess that we're in the middle of, and we are not going to agree. Not everyone in the church is going to agree. Certainly not everyone in Compass Bible Church is going to agree. And yet we are going to be committed to unity and harmony and getting along. And I think getting back to the most important common denominator that our names are written in the book of life of what it's, is what it's all about. And you need to be that kind of peacemaker. And I think you got to be careful that you're not, you know, acting, you know, like some, uh, you know, maternal figure as though you're condescendingly chiding people for not getting along or narking them for their Facebook posts or, you know, what they say on Instagram. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I, I am saying you got to work, I put it this way, to unify disagreeable Christians. That ought to be our concern. I'm not asking you to be the hall monitor or the mall cop or whatever. I just want you to do what Paul did. I put it down this way. Number nine, Paul worked to unify disagreeable Christians. He worked at it. He 
prayed for it, I'm sure. He wanted it. He wanted to enlist people to help them, and he kept telling them, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, you may totally disagree with what I think about this COVID-19 thing or how we should get back together, or I'm just talking on an individual basis, not parishioner to pastor here. I'm just saying we can have totally different opinions on that. But here's the thing. I hope you recognize our commonality in Christ is that we're going to spend eternity together, and our names are both written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that is our unity. That, I hope, can allow us to not grumble and dispute, not to complain and war and, and fight and engage in arguments. I want to work toward unity. The unifying issues are always the gospel and our relationship with God, and he does such a great job in two verses here just making that clear. So be like the Apostle Paul. Pray for, work toward, uh, exhort, encourage, do what you can uh, to be a peacemaker in our church so that we're not warring with each other. Long passage that I want to end with here, and yet it is a very simple observation. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Let me read this. He says this in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. All right, I, I've been in prison, but you re revived your concern. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So these are some veiled ways, it seems, at least in our minds, it seems veiled, verse 14, to talk about sharing in the trouble. Or verse number 10, you've revived your concern for me. Um, the opportunity that they had, verse 11, uh, you know, dealing with need. We're talking about them giving them, these guys gave Paul some money. That's what happened here. And he's saying, listen, that's a great thing. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say in verse 15, you Philippians, um, he says, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, as I was sharing it, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you, you gave. In Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, right? It's not that I'm just grubbing for, for the money. He says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I'm glad that you, as a giving person, that generosity, God's going to honor that. He's going to be good to you for being generous. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm good. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, which were, look at this, a fragrant offering, an acceptable, I mean, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's so much in those 11 verses, verses 10 through 20, and it's so often taught, and we could look at so many things here as it relates to Christ's sustaining work in the midst of our trials and all that, but I just want to look at what this whole thing is, verses 10 through 20. It is him writing a thank you note for something good that these Philippians had done. They had been generous, they had sacrificed, and he was writing a thank you note. And Paul was good at that. Here is a divinely inspired, think about that, a God-breathed example of Paul being thankful and writing a thank you note. And I just, I mean, we talk about a lot of sub-issues here and, and, and themes, but let's just end with that one. Number 10, Paul was good at writing thank you notes. And I just want you, if there's any time for you, and I'm sure there is, uh, to express your thanks in writing, uh, man, now's a good time to do that. You need to take an, an evaluation and an assessment of your relationships. And when you see people that have uh, given or sacrificed for you, and I'm not talking about me, right? Please, uh, I want to say like Paul, I got everything I need and the thanks I need. I'm just saying for your relationships with people that you've seen, other people who have done something for you, they've been kind to you, they've They've sacrificed for you. They've, they've gone out of their way to even to check on you. And you look at the good that they've done. And you see them being kind and generous and partnering and bearing your burdens or whatever. Can you do what the Apostle Paul did? Just write them. Sit down and write them a thank you note. And if you're old school and you value the written you know, pen and ink, you know, get your fountain pen out, whatever. Write on some nice stationery and send a thank you note. If you're like me and it doesn't matter if it's on paper or not, then just... Text someone, 
email someone. I mean, I don't care. FaceTime someone, uh, uh, Marco Polo someone. Do something that shows your gratitude for them. You want to see all these things kind of come together in terms of, of how Paul is finding joy in part because he looks beyond circumstances to the big issues of God and people. Uh, part of it's going to be being, uh, I think, um, generous with our thanksgiving to each other. So write a thank you note. Write a few thank you notes. Write a couple of people today and just tell them that you're thankful for whatever sacrifice you've seen them perform, even if it's for someone else. Tonight I'm going to be in a situation where I get a chance to say thank you to a missionary, a group of missionaries. And I just think, you know, they're sacrificing for other people and I want to be grateful to them. And I'd like to be like the Apostle Paul uh, trying to give that kind of amazing, I mean, it's so such a great, if you want to analyze it, a great section of really encouraging words to a church that ponied up some money to help the Apostle Paul. And Paul, in a masterful way, um, gives them a tremendously memorable thank you in, in words I'm sure they cherished. So um, put the pen to the paper, start texting, get a thank you to a few people and just get it out there and express your heart. Nothing going to pull us together better than that. So 10 things, that was a 10 point sermon. Did you catch that? Paul uses all means of communication, joyfully thankful for other Christians, cultivated a deep affection for God's people, optimistic because God is sovereign, resolved to glorify God no matter what, resolved not to complain, didn't let distance diminish his friendships, set his hope on eternity, worked to unify disagreeable Christians, and he was really good at writing thank you notes. And I would commend you to that in some very unorthodox, well, that's a bad word to say about a sermon, but um, in, in some very unusual kinds of, of sermons that I'm bringing you during this time. There's a lot to work on this week. Uh, I'm going to send you a bunch of discussion questions here in just a minute, and uh, I want to make sure that you spend time working through uh, just basically a uh, a, a, a study, a character study of the Apostle Paul and how we can reflect uh, the good things that he's doing uh, in his lockdown, that we can reflect that in our lockdown. So let's get to work this week. Let me pray for you and then uh, we'll get you on to your discussion questions. God, we do pray uh, that we would live up as best we can to the good examples you give us in Scripture uh, that your spirit would help us to identify the problems that stand in the way of us, whether it's um, affectionately caring for people or being thankful and grateful for those who do good or um, whatever it is, uh, stepping in to try and help Christians get along, whatever we find that makes this a difficult thing for us, I pray that you'd work on in our hearts so that we can be like the Apostle Paul, The people maybe could even point to us one day and say there's a good example of living out of the principles that we see in the scripture, even if the circumstances are hard. God, let us in our lockdown learn from Paul's lockdown and let us be able to be great shining examples of what you wanna see in a situation like this, which is minor compared to the kinds of persecution Christians have been through in generations past. Even if our economy collapses, even if the worst takes place, we, we realize that um, God, we just want to suffer through this the way we ought to, with joy and unity and team spirit here as the body of Christ. Uh, and I pray that it would uh, just begin by us working to apply these very simple principles and observations from the Apostle Paul's life. We thank you for him. We look forward to meeting him one day and are grateful for the way you used him. Use us now, I pray, in our day, in Jesus' name. Amen.